Section 7 of The Life of Richard Nash, Esquire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. The Life of Richard Nash, Esquire, Late Master of Ceremonies at Bath, by Oliver Goldsmith. Edited by Peter Cunningham. I shall beg leave to give some other instances of Mr. Nash's good nature on these occasions, as I have had the accounts from himself. At the conclusion of the Treaty of Peace at Utrecht, Colonel M. was one of the thoughtless, agreeable, gay creatures that drew the attention of the company at Bath. He danced and talked with great vivacity, and when he gamed among the ladies, he showed that his attention was employed rather upon their hearts than their fortunes. His own fortune, however, was a trifle, when compared to the elegance of his expense, and his imprudence at last was so great that it obliged him to sell an annuity arising from his commission to keep up his splendour a little longer. However thoughtless he might be, he had the happiness of gaining the affections of Miss L., whose father designed her a very large fortune. This lady was courted by a nobleman of distinction, but she refused his addresses, resolved upon gratifying rather her inclinations than her avarice. The intrigue went on successfully between her and the colonel, and they both would certainly have been married and been undone had not Mr. Nash apprised her father of their intentions. The old gentleman recalled his daughter from Bath, and offered Nash a very considerable present for the care he had taken, which he refused. In the meantime, Colonel M. had an intimation how his intrigue came to be discovered, and by taxing Nash, found that his suspicions were not without foundation. A challenge was the immediate consequence, which the King of Bath, conscious of having only done his duty, thought proper to decline. As none are permitted to wear swords at Bath, the Colonel found no opportunity of gratifying his resentment, and waited with impatience to find Mr. Nash in town, to require proper satisfaction. During this interval, however, he found his creditors become too importunate for him to remain longer at Bath, and his finances and credit being quite exhausted, he took the desperate resolution of going over to the Dutch army in Flanders, where he enlisted himself a volunteer. Here he underwent all the fatigues of a private sentinel, with the additional misery of receiving no pay, and his friends in England gave out that he was shot at the Battle of Blank. In the meantime, the nobleman pressed his passion with ardour, but during the process of his amour, the young lady's father died, and left her heiress to a fortune of fifteen hundred a year. She thought herself now disengaged from her former passion. An absence of two years had in some measure abated her love for the colonel and to the assiduity, the merit, and real regard of the gentleman who still continued to solicit her, were almost too powerful for her constancy. Mr. Nash, in the meantime, took every opportunity of inquiring after Colonel M., and found that he had for some time been returned to England, but had changed his name in order to avoid the fury of his creditors, and was entered into a company of strolling players at that time exhibiting at Peterborough. He now therefore thought he owed the colonel, in justice, an opportunity of promoting his fortune, 
as he had once deprived him of an occasion of satisfying his love. Our beau, therefore, invited the lady to be of a party to Peterborough, and offered his own equipage, which was then one of the most elegant in England, to conduct her there. The proposal being accepted, the lady, the nobleman, and Mr. Nash arrived in town just as the players were going to begin. Colonel M., who used every means of remaining incognito, and who was too proud to make his distresses known to any of his former acquaintance, was now degraded into the character of Tom in the Conscious Lovers. Miss L. was placed in the foremost row of the spectators, her lord on one side and the impatient Nash on the other, when the unhappy youth appeared in that despicable situation upon the stage. The moment he came on, his former mistress struck his view, but his amazement was increased when he saw her fainting away in the arms of those who sat behind her. He was incapable of proceeding, and scarcely knowing what he did, he flew and caught her in his arms. "'Colonel!' cried Nash, when they were in some measure recovered. "'You once thought me your enemy, because I endeavoured to prevent you both from ruining each other. You were then wrong, and you have long had my forgiveness. If you love well enough now for matrimony, you fairly have my consent, and d him, say I, that attempts to part you.' Their nuptials were solemnized soon after, and affluence added a zest to all their future enjoyments. Mr. Nash had the thanks of each, and he afterwards spent several agreeable days in that society which he had contributed to render happy. I shall beg the reader's patience while I give another instance, in which he ineffectually offered his assistance and advice. This story is not from himself, but told us partly by Mr. Wood, the architect of Bath, as it fell particularly within his own knowledge, and partly from another memoir to which he refers. Miss Sylvia S. was descended from one of the best families in the kingdom, and was left a large fortune upon her sister's decease. She had, early in life, been introduced into the best company, and contracted a passion for elegance and expense. It is usual to make the heroine of a story very witty and very beautiful, and such circumstances are so surely expected that they are scarce attended to. But whatever the finest poet could conceive of wit, or the most celebrated painter imagine of beauty, were excelled in the perfections of this young lady. Her superiority in both was allowed by all who either heard or had seen her. She was naturally gay, generous to a fault, good-natured to the highest degree, affable in conversation, and some of her letters and other writings, as well in verse as prose, would have shone amongst those of the most celebrated wits of this or any other age, had they been published. But these great qualifications were marked by another, which lessened the value of them all. She was imprudent, but let it not be imagined that her reputation or honour suffered by her imprudence. I only mean she had no knowledge of the use of money. She relieved distress by putting herself into the circumstances of the object whose wants she supplied. She was arrived at the age of nineteen, when the crowd of her lovers and the continual repetition of new flattery had taught her to think she could never be forsaken 
and never poor. Young ladies are apt to expect a certainty of success from a number of lovers, and yet I have seldom seen a girl courted by a hundred lovers that found a husband in any. Before the choice is fixed, she has either lost her reputation or her good sense, and the loss of either is sufficient to consign her to perpetual virginity. Among the number of this young lady's lovers was the celebrated S., who at that time went by the name of the good-natured man. This gentleman, with talents that might have done honour to humanity, suffered himself to fall at length into the lowest state of debasement. He followed the dictates of every newest passion. His love, his pity, his generosity, and even his friendships were all in excess. He was unable to make head against any of his sensations or desires, but they were in general worthy wishes and desires, for he was constitutionally virtuous. This gentleman, who at last died in jail, was at that time this lady's envied favourite. It is probable that he, thoughtless creature, had no other prospect from this amour but that of passing the present moments agreeably. He only courted dissipation, but the lady's thoughts were fixed on happiness. At length, however, his debts amounting to a considerable sum, he was arrested and thrown into prison. He endeavoured at first to conceal his situation from his beautiful mistress, but she soon came to a knowledge of his distress, and took the fatal resolution of freeing him from confinement by discharging all the demands of his creditors. Mr. Nash was at that time in London, and represented to the thoughtless young lady that such a measure would effectually ruin both, that so warm a concern for the interests of Mr. S. would in the first place quite impair her fortune in the eyes of our sex, and what was worse, lessen her reputation in those of her own. He added that thus bringing Mr. S. from prison would be only a temporary relief that a mind so generous as his would become bankrupt under the load of gratitude, and instead of improving in friendship or affection, he would only study to avoid a creditor he could never repay, that though small favours produce good will, great ones destroy friendship. These admonitions, however, were disregarded, and she found too late the prudence and truth of her adviser. In short, her fortune was by this means exhausted, and, with all her attractions, she found her acquaintance began to disesteem her in proportion as she became poor. In this situation she accepted Mr. Nash's invitation of returning to Bath. He promised to introduce her to the best company there, and he was assured that her merit would do the rest. Upon her very first appearance, ladies of the highest distinction courted her friendship and esteem. But a settled melancholy had taken possession of her mind, and no amusements that they could propose were sufficient to divert it. Yet still, as if from habit, she followed the crowd in its levities, and frequented those places where all persons endeavoured to forget themselves in the bustle of ceremony and show. Her beauty, her simplicity, and her unguarded situation soon drew the attention of a designing wretch, who 
who at that time kept one of the rooms at Bath, and who thought that this lady's merit, properly managed, might turn to good account. This woman's name was Dame Lindsay, a creature who, though vicious, was in appearance sanctified, and, though designing, had some wit and humour. She began by the humblest assiduity to ingratiate herself with Miss S., showed that she could be amusing as a companion, and, by frequent offers of money, proved that she could be useful as a friend. Thus, by degrees, she gained an entire ascendancy over this poor, thoughtless, deserted girl, and in less than one year, namely about 1727, Miss S., without ever transgressing the laws of virtue, had entirely lost her reputation. Whenever a person was wanting to make up a party for play at Dame Lindsay's, Sylvia, as she was then familiarly called, was sent for, and was obliged to suffer all those slights which the rich but too often let fall upon their inferiors in point of fortune. In most, even the greatest minds, the heart at last becomes level with the meanness of its condition. But in this charming girl it struggled hard with adversity, and yielded to every encroachment of contempt with sullen reluctance. But though in the course of three years she was in the very eye of public inspection, yet Mr. Wood, the architect, avers that he could never by the strictest observations perceive her to be tainted with any other vice than that of suffering herself to be decoyed to the gaming-table, and at her own hazard playing for the amusement and advantage of others. Her friend, Mr. Nash, therefore thought proper to induce her to break off all connections with Dame Lindsay, and to rent part of Mr. Wood's house in Queen Square, where she behaved with the utmost complacence, regularity, and virtue. In this situation, her detestation of life still continued. She found that time would infallibly deprive her of part of her attractions, and that continual solicitude would impair the rest. With these reflections she would frequently entertain herself and an old faithful maid in the vales of Bath, whenever the weather would permit them to walk out. She would even sometimes start questions in company, with seeming unconcern, in order to know what act of suicide was easiest, and which was attended with the smallest pain. When tired with exercise, she generally retired to meditation, and she became habituated to early hours of sleep and rest. But when the weather prevented her usual exercise, and her sleep was thus more difficult, she made it a rule to rise from her bed and walk about her chamber, till she began to find an inclination for repose. This custom made it necessary for her to order a candle to be kept burning all night in her room, and the maid usually, when she withdrew, locked the chamber door, and pushing the key under it beyond reach, her mistress, by that constant method, lay undisturbed till seven o'clock in the morning, when she arose, unlocked the door, and rang the bell as a signal for the maid to return. This state of seeming piety, regularity, and prudence continued for some time, till the gay, celebrated, toasted Miss Sylvia was sunk into a housekeeper to the gentleman at whose house she lived. She was unable to keep company for want of the elegancies of dress, which are the usual passports among the polite. 
and was too haughty to seem to want them. The fashionable, the amusing, and the polite in society now seldom visited her, and from being once the object of every eye she was now deserted by all, and preyed upon by the bitter reflections of her own imprudence. End of section 7